Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're returning to China and asking what its economic slowdown means for the world. That's one of those questions that has really been hanging over a lot of our work over the past few months. Since emerging from lockdown, the world's second largest economy, depending on how you count it, faces slow growth, high youth unemployment, a property market precarious and plagued by debt. So we're going to talk about what this means for China's leader, Xi Jinping, who had a rare meeting with US President Joe Biden last week, and what it means for global growth. We're also going to talk about the impact of China's slowdown on its foreign policy, whether that means it's going to become more assertive or less so. We've seen in recent months a lot of assertive Chinese behavior towards the American, Canadian, Australian armed forces, and in the South China Sea, Beijing's maritime militia has been blocking the Philippines from accessing islands there. So we will talk about the relationship between China's economy and its chosen policy in the world. I've got a great team here this week to talk about all this. Joining me down the line is Professor Kerry Brown, Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London, longtime associate of Chatham House. Kerry, welcome. Hi, hello. Great to have you. And you've just got a book out, don't you? Yes, I have, um, about China's potential to be number one, but obviously it looks less likely now than it did even a year ago. But yeah, it just came out a, a few months ago. Very closely related to what we're talking about. Thank you. Joining us as well is Latika Bork, author and journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald. Very warm welcome. Thank you for having me, Brahman. Great to have you here. And finally, well, not finally in a sense, joining us is David Lubin, uh, who has now just become a senior research fellow with our Global Economy and Finance Programme. Welcome, David. Thank you, Bronwyn. I'm delighted to join Chatham House. Great. Well, that's a double welcome, I guess, <laughs> to this programme and to Chatham House. Much more to come on that. Well, let's start with China's slowing economy and what that means, what the challenges are facing the economy since coming out of lockdown and uh, w- what the past few months really means. David, I wondered if you could kick us off. Well, I guess on the face of it, it's difficult to argue that there's a slowdown at all in the sense that GDP growth in 2022 was 3%. GDP growth this year will be close to 5 or 5.5%. So in that sense, there's no slowdown. But the data does hide a tremendous lack of confidence, both among the household sector within China and among the corporate sector. And the reason for the for the lack of confidence, both among households and among com- companies, are different. But in a way, there is one fundamental common denominator that helps to explain why the mood is so sluggish. And I think that has to do with the overwhelming determination of Beijing policymakers to wean the economy off of its dependence on real estate. For many years, the Chinese economy has depended overwhelmingly on real estate investment to drive GDP. Uh, Real estate investment uh, has been accounting for upwards of of 25% of GDP. Economically, that's nonsense. But strategically also, I think what what Chinese policymakers are trying to do are to shift capital and credit resources away from the property, property sector towards sectors that they believe will become more important strategically from their point of view, namely technology, green energy, and uh, investment in domestic agriculture. That sounds great. It sounds a very clear strategy. But what does that mean? What does it mean for ordinary Chinese who may have some of their household money tied up in property? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the the the, the weaning of the economy off of, off of property investment does have a terrible dampening effect on household confidence because a lot of household wealth is tied up in real estate. And so, you know, with property prices falling 
with the sort of real estate climate in the doldrums, that is a sort of central reason why why household confidence is is so low because the, their balance sheet, household balance sheets, are suffering as a result of you know having debt against property, worrying about the value of that property, and therefore not. I mean, it's not that negative equity is going to be a problem in China, but but there is balance sheet stress for Chinese households, and that causes them to engage in a phenomenon that's known as consumption downgrading. So although retail sales have been picking up in the last couple of months, retail sales volume has been picking up a lot more than retail sales value because of this uh, endless searching for bargains that Chinese households are engaged in. And that search for bargains is a reflection of this very low level of confidence. And is it what you mean by balance sheets there? We're talking about household debt and their, and their assets. And you know, with a lot of that tied up in property, you can see why they are worried, particularly in a, in a country without as much safety net, uh, social safety net, as there the may be in others. Particularly, what do you think that this looks like there? We're, we're hearing about ghost cities. We're hearing about a lot of youth unemployment. I think for a country like mine, Australia, which uh, relies, you could almost say solely on the Chinese economy, but actually it is our largest trading partner, $300 billion AUD worth of two-way trade. And that's only increased since the pandemic. But a couple of interesting things are happening. We have 30% of our exports going towards China, but one of the pre-pandemic boosts to our economy was in tourism. And that affects what David is describing there, has meant that we have not seen tourism numbers rebound to Australia from China. In fact, Bronwyn, it may stun you to know that we had as many uh, visitors, overseas visitors from Singapore last year as we did from China alone. And that is just such a staggering reversal. Before the pandemic, China was the number one market for tourism. That is a stunning figure. I'm looking at you with very wide eyes. Yeah, the dollar uh, has really weakened. It's around 63 cents US. And iron ore, which is the bulk of our trade with China, those prices have also come down. So the weakening of China means a weakened Australia economically, and that will set off what we are seeing, which is a desire and a drive to try and diversify the trading relationships. And that, of course, then does bring into a different, which I know we'll get to, a different sort of tension geopolitically in terms of the foreign relationship and the bilateral relationship with China. Uh, but I also think there's a huge amount of denial in Australia about what that slowing economy means. It's discussed, of course, at the elite level, but I would say at the retail level, that conversation is not yet happening because the Australians uh, have a, a very proud nature, I think, of really putting the head in the sand and just thinking everything will be okay because we're a country that was blessed with a coal boom, a country that was blessed with a gas boom, a country that's been blessed with an iron ore boom, and a country that's about to be blessed with a lithium boom. So I think there's a lot of prevailing hope uh, that the lucky country will be lucky once more. I always enjoy people's characterizations of their own countries. Kerry, how precarious does this feel to you? Is it a transition that can be managed smoothly by those at the top, or is it something where a lot of people are very worried from households? right across the country. Yeah, thank you, uh, Bronwyn. I mean, the Xi Jinping leadership has never really been that interested in the economics until now. It's been interested in party building and ideology and, you know, kind of cleansing the party through anti-corruption struggles. So uh, uh, Xi Jinping and his colleagues who are uh, focused on the economy and making that the centre of their politics uh, is, is a new thing. I, I mean, there's an industry of pessimism about China, and I sometimes think it's like a kind of cipher of how we feel about other issues. I mean, we all 
and I like to feel pessimistic about China. And I have to say, looking at the records since 1978, the pessimists have usually been wrong. That's the thing that makes me nervous now because we have this field day of pessimism and I guess there's a lot of people in the West with a vested interest in China basically going down the tubes basically for emotional reasons, even if not rational ones. No, I understand that. But one, one of the things I'm asking you is, is whether the Chinese feel pessimistic about China at this point, whether the kind of drop in confidence that we've been uh, discussing is really pervasive. Well, it's hard to say because there's lack of information. I mean, I know from students I've got and people that are coming from China, it's a parallel universe. I mean, there was a senior economist from uh, China who worked for a government think tank who came last week and spoke at uh, one of the Lord Mayor's events and said, well, it's fine because state assets, you know, the state has loads of assets. It can deal with this. We're not like Japan. We're not like others. We've got a unique path. You could say they would say that, wouldn't they? But it's just weird that there's this divergence. I, I mean, most economists who are in China say one thing. I mean, what do people think? I mean, the thing is that they can't really, the housing market, for instance, I mean, it can't really fail. I mean, if it fails, we're all screwed, basically. That's the problem. Uh, So I don't know whether confidence, unconfidence is the way to capture it. I mean, it's like must or mustn't, you know? I mean, it's got to work. Can I just pick up on on what Kerry said about the role of ideology? Because I think, you know, I talked earlier about the the low level of confidence among households, but I think ideology plays a role in explaining the low level of confidence among corporates in China. You know, it was as recently as late 2021 that the authorities were proposing a traffic light system for private capital. You know, the idea that the the party would be determining what kind of private sector investment was good, what kind of private sector investment was bad. That was all against the background where the overwhelming slogan defining the the party's relationship with the with the with the corporate sector was wanting to control the what they called the unrestrained expansion of capital. And so I think that even though after the end of the lockdown late last year the authorities are trying to kind of, you know, give a warm embrace to the corporate sector, that's a very difficult thing to do against the background where previously ideological concerns, the the willingness of or the desire on the part of the party to kind of insert itself into the corporate sector leaves companies feeling unsure about the rules of the road. And that was reinforced as recently as July this year, when in order to shore up private sector confidence, the authorities came up with a 31-point plan to revive corporate confidence, point 21 of which was effectively a reminder about how important it is to insert party officials into the governance structures of of Chinese companies. Oh, that's wonderful. I can't, maybe Chatham House needs a 31-point plan. Um, <laughs> looking at my colleagues around the room, not the answer. <laughs> I don't know if the answer is yes. Kerry, could I just pick up on one fact, though, that we can ob- observe from the outside, or two facts, if you like, the sudden ousting of the defence minister and foreign minister. These are not low-level jobs. What should we conclude from that? Yeah, they're not low-level jobs, and they're not central people in terms of Xi Jinping's in a, in a circle. I mean, I guess it shows nervousness. I mean, Xin Gang and uh, Li Xiangfu, you know, the Minister of Defence, their departure from power is not elegant. I mean, the issues are both connected to corruption, and there seems to be a perpetual anti-corruption dig at the People's Liberation Army because they had a lot of money to spend on, you know, ballistics, particularly pointed at Taiwan, that didn't in the end kind of work during the Pelosi visit. I think there were 16 fired and 10 of them didn't go off or something. So it was, you know, I mean, they're big, big sort of cost items. I, I, I think we should, we should say this is alleged corruption, which they Yeah, have. alleged corruption. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. But what, what should we assume that presidency meant by this? What does it tell us about the direction of the government? 
well, it's a bit like Talleyrand when a colleague died saying, what did he mean by that? You know, <laughs> I mean, you know what, what? Yes, but this isn't, co- this isn't colleagues just, if you like, dying. Uh, this is, um, yes. I, I, I'm not going to pursue the analogy, but uh, he, he did sack them. Yeah, I mean, I think that it shows, um, I mean, the weird thing is that Xi Jinping's leadership group has been quite stable. So it is odd that those two uh, at that level had disappeared. I, I mean, I guess the question it may, may raise is, you know, who is Xi Jinping listening to, particularly on the economy? I mean, he had an advisor, Liu He, now Liu He has gone. So there's this issue of the inner circle around him and what impact they have on him. And we're not really, you know, we don't really know. It's a very opaque box at the moment. Matika, I want to come back to your point that you were making about the effect on other countries, including those close to it, like like Australia. How do you begin to penetrate this fog that Kerry's been describing about where China may go in the coming months? I think ideology is crucial, not just within China, but also the inverse. I mean, we are seeing lots of US-based companies leave China, close up shop because of the way uh, that China has sought to crack down on, on overseas firms operating in China. And I think the geopolitical risk that the US and its allies is underlining to companies is only going to exacerbate this flight from China. So we're seeing that a lot. But I think two things are happening in terms of foreign policy, which is there's a desire for China to be a little bit nicer to some of the countries it was not being that nice to. What kind of countries are we talking about? Or which, which countries, I should say? Australia is a perfect example here. So during the pandemic, uh, it was led by a centre-right government very hawkish on China, increasingly so to the point where relations reached this absolute nadir, where China refused to pick up the phone to the prime minister, diplomats, anybody, where there was just radio silence. And this was all culminating after the Australian government, led by Scott Morrison at the time, called for an inquiry into COVID-19. Now, that left Australia hanging in the breeze and China cracked down on it like a ton of bricks. It blockaded certain imports of things like coal and lobster, whacked tariffs of 80% on barley up to 212% on wine just overnight. Now, that's cataclysmic for some of those industries. The wine industry didn't really recover. Barley did. They were able to find new markets for it. Nevertheless, that sent shivers down the spines of Australians because they realised in one fell swoop, actually, China has the intent to cripple us if it wanted to, and here's them demonstrating around the edges how they could. Since then, there's been the election of a left-wing government, a Labor government, and they've sought to kind of stabilise the relationship. That's how they describe it. And that has had some success. So China has lifted its uh, tariffs on barley. It's about to do the same for wine. It's let coal back in. It's let lobster back in. Also, though, it should be noted, those two cases, particularly on the wine and barley, were going to the WTO, and it really did look like China was about to lose those cases. So Australia and China did a little backroom deal where they said, hey, why don't you announce a little review and in three months' time you can lift those tariffs. So China wasn't going to win internationally with those cases, but nevertheless, Bronwyn, that is a demonstration of China being a little bit nicer towards Australia and encouraging, I think, a warmer relation. And don't underestimate how crucial it would be to throw a splinter in between Australia and the United States. We've just signed AUKUS. That is absolutely 100% squarely aimed at China. They know it. And if they this could is the even, defense pack, uh, which the UK is also in. Yes, to acquire the submarines. Now, if that were to just even throw a little sliver of difference between Australia and, and, and the UK and the US in there, China would be delighted with that outcome. Well, let's use that 
as a reason to move and just talk more widely about China's positioning in the world. And Kerry, I wondered what you made of the recent meeting with Joe Biden and presidency. Did you detect any more warming there, as some people did? Well, there were measurable outputs, and that was a good thing, because last time they met at Bali a year ago, it was all atmospherics. It wasn't really about measuring things. So there were specific things about military dialogue, fentanyl and things like this that you could actually say have to now happen. I mean, it's an admission. I mean, we're living in an age of realism, really. We've got to work with people we don't like, whether we, I mean, whatever. And I think that America and China have so many common interests. The irony really is, you know, that they have more in common than they probably have not in common. I mean, the problem for China is that it's impacted on the outside world in ways which are unintentional, and that is the unpredictability of politics in America. And next year is going to be a tough year. The Taiwanese election in January and then the American election in November uh, these are going to be big, big moments because I think China sees very big and unwelcome and unexpected things coming from them. And that's going to have an impact on its domestic politics. It's a big year for elections. Uh, we think the biggest ever, something like 70 elections in, in democracies and more than half the world's population in countries going to the polls. And that uh, complicates multilateralism and bilateralism in all kinds of ways. A whole lot of uncertainty, which we'll be talking about a lot next year. David, wh- how do you calibrate China's recent behavior in its neighborhood, including some of the uh, incidents we've had with other countries, warships and so on, and yet this slightly more practical dialogue with the US. I think that slightly more practical dialogue with the US is to some extent, or maybe largely, a function of China's economic weakness. Although, you know, there are a lot of success stories in the Chinese economy, electric vehicle sales, solar cell sales, Lithium battery sales, you know, this is the China dominates global exports in all three of these areas. The fact of the lack of confidence I was talking about earlier does mean that some kind of stabilization of the bilateral relationship is useful for Chinese policymakers at the moment. That they feel they're in a world of realism as well, not just uh, the US. Mm. Yes, Kerry was yes, describing absolutely. it because it, it doesn't work if just one side thinks it. Yeah. And and one of the one aspect of this of the way in which China is constrained by the United States is particularly, maybe it's a bit technical for this, but in in terms of monetary policy, the three-month interest rate in the United States is about three percentage points higher than the three-month interest rate in China. What that means is that if the Chinese central bank tried to loosen monetary policy and cut Chinese interest rates, the interest rate differential between the US and China would get even bigger, and that would encourage outflows of capital from China. And capital outflows would reinforce this sense of a lack of confidence across the economy. And so the fact that U.S. monetary policy is is so tight prevents the Chinese central bank from loosening monetary policy in a way that it might otherwise would. Patika, what do you make of some of this assertive, even aggressive Chinese action involving ships and planes from the U.S., from Australia, and the way it's blockading the, the Philippines from accessing its islands in the, the South China Sea. Well, we had a really interesting case last week where HMAS Toowoomba is a, a frigate and it was a warship and it was operating in Japan's EEZ. Now, RAN divers went down to try and free a Toowoomba's propellers of fishing nets. They alerted everybody in the region that this is what they were doing and the Chinese came over and began uh, sending sonar pulses to deliberately try and injure those divers. Now, they had to abort that mission and come up because the pulses were that high. And according to the Australian government, one diver at least sustained minor injuries. 
Now, that comes against the backdrop of what we were just discussing earlier, which is this great stabilisation between Australia. President Xi has welcomed Australia's Anthony Albanese to China just very recently, praised him as a handsome boy. You know, in terms of friendliness, that visit couldn't have gone better. And then you fast forward a week and Albanese and Xi are in San Francisco at APEC together. This incident happens on Tuesday uh, and Albanese's government puts out the statement on Saturday, well and truly after he's left APEC and clearly has not raised this in face with President Xi despite having a bilateral. And there you have, I think, in a very neat example, the absolute crux of this issue, which is on one hand you have countries that are very, very dependent on China and know that they cannot wean themselves off the Chinese economy, however it might be uh, having some stumbles at the moment. But at the same time, trying to balance what is their economic prosperity with their security And for Australia, this is a very unique challenge. Our largest trading partner since 2007 has been China. And so it does put some complexity into our security posture, particularly when we have the United States wanting us to go a lot further. And so I think this is a very, very important test for at least the Labor government. That visit did not go down well with the public. And I think uh, Albanese's failure to raise that with Xi is also going to compound to this. So that there sets off maybe a desire for a bit of a tougher tone on China, which was something that people were moving away from after the, the nadir of relations during the former government. Kerry, in this fluctuating, complex, but realistic picture that we're talking about, how far do you think China intends to take the Taiwan question? Well, I don't think it's going to take it necessarily very far, long as it's not provoked. And that means a declaration either by uh, the president of Taiwan, whoever's elected in January, it might be Lai Qingde, who has a history of supporting independence from the DPP, or from an American president, you know, elected, reneging on the one China policy. I mean, if those two things happen, then we have a problem. But I think that, you know, China knows and Xi Jinping knows that the economic and geopolitical impact of their own unilateral move on Taiwan would be an absolute disaster. So you can look at all of the rhetoric and, yeah, some of the actions. I mean, the infringements on Chinese, Taiwanese territory and air territory are not good. However, that's theatre. Actual actions, I mean, that would be a very different world we move into. The PLA have not been mobilised abroad since, I think, 1979. So uh, if they were to do anything on Taiwan, uh, that would be a different world than the one we live in, even if they just stepped one foot on Jinmeng Island, which I think is two kilometres from the Fujian coast. Supposing they didn't set one foot there, but in what's been called the anaconda strategy, simply made things a whole lot more difficult for Taiwan by encircling it, by having these kind of manoeuvres around there. What, what does that do? Well, in a sense, diplomatically, they've been making life very difficult for Taiwan since Tsai Ing-wen got in, you know, seven years ago, and they've done partial blockades. Uh, I mean, the big kind of issue is economically, it will have an impact on China at the moment. And so there's this issue of its domestic economy means it is maybe less likely to really, really go nuclear on Taiwan in the sort of anaconda way. But I mean, it is provocable. That's the problem. And there are people in American politics who will want to provoke it. And that is going to be an enormous escalation. That's where it could happen. And it's less, it's it's more likely now than it's ever been in the last 30 years, which I've been dealing with China. And that's the worrying thing. Going nuclear, we mean metaphorically, though. I, yes. I hope. I, 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 <laughs> Indeed. I, I, I really, I, I really yes, I hope. 
David, how do you, coming towards the end, but just this, this crucial question of how one calibrates this enormous uncertainty we've been discussing, how one tries to estimate what the Chinese leadership's intentions are going to be towards Taiwan and, and, and generally all these problems at home we began by discussing and its desire for, you know, assertiveness, but not too much. I mean, the economic implications of, of any attempt to uh, take Taiwan would obviously be uh, enormous. I think one way of understanding Chinese policy these days is to think about what the Politburo must have been talking about in March 2022 in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It seems to me completely reasonable that the Chinese leadership will be saying to itself, some form of coordinated sanctions might well be a scenario that confronts China. And therefore, it makes sense for us to start thinking about how we best protect ourselves, what we need to do to kind of absorb the shock of coordinated sanctions if and when they occur. And I think that the strategy, the best way of thinking about what their strategy is, is contained in the phrase asymmetric decoupling. I think what the Chinese are trying to do is to gradually reduce their dependence on the rest of the world's imports, because doing that would help the Chinese economy absorb the shock of coordinated sanctions if and when they occurred, while at the same time maintaining the rest of the world's dependence on Chinese exports. That's the, the way it's sort of asymmetric. And I think that that is a very broad way of describing what is, I think, a long-term strategy. It's difficult to see month by month any evidence of that strategy being implemented. But I think it would be crazy to assume that the Chinese are indifferent to the way the US and its allies have been using sanctions in the last couple of years. And for sure, Chinese policy must be adjusting to, uh, to accommodate that risk. I've heard fears of the US weaponizing the dollar many, many times mm. in almost every <laughs> Chinese conversation I've had. Uh, Latika, your sense of just our own confidence or lack of it in the coming months? Actually, I thought the Xi and Biden meeting was a very good sign, actually. I think the resumption of military to military contact can't be underestimated how important that is, because really I think we're in an environment now, as Kerry kind of alluded to before, of accidental miscalculation. That's what actually is is the danger here. It's not, I think, that there's any great rush in Beijing to take Taiwan with a military assault tomorrow, or, nor is there the same desire in, in Washington, despite all the hawkish rhetoric. And there's absolutely no desire in ASEAN and, and in my region for this either. So nobody wants conflict between these two great powers. And everybody has been stressing that to both China and Washington. Some of that, I think, is starting to get through. Some of it, I think, is more more steered by the economic situation that we've been talking about. I think there is still room for optimism because we are seeing world leaders, I think, fight back a little more intelligently. I think the United States Chips Act, the IRA are part of this. And I do have some optimism that actually we may have caught it in time to prevent what is this asymmetric decoupling that, that David refers to. You know, everybody is onto this now. They know that China's made them dependent on them while at the same time decoupling from them. And so I think that with those foundations, policymaking can have a better steer. All of that I caveat with Trump 2.0, of course, is a huge risk <laughs> to all of this. Absolutely. It hangs over all of this and over all our podcasts. And of course, we're going to be giving that a lot of attention. But I liked your phrase, caught it in time. It did strike me that when Xi and Biden met uh, in Bali, the first meeting since the pandemic, just how much these personal contacts had been lost during the pandemic and how much they can serve to, to take down the tension. I don't want to be sentimental about the, the value of such contacts, but, but still, but still, they do have a value. 
we're going to have to draw to a close then, but this is a many-sided conversation. And as, as I said, it runs through an awful lot of our work. Big thank you to my guests, Kerry Brown, Latika Borg, and David Lubin. Do follow them all on Twitter, X. The links are in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. I always ask rather plaintively, but we do very much enjoy them, whatever you say. And to read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member. And we would love to have you. Don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, where you can find all our programs, all our work, all our events, including our Asia-Pacific program and our global economy and finance program. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. See you next week.